Thank you very much. Uh, if uh, Josh had kept going with that introduction, I would have thought I was attending my own funeral. <laughs> it is an incredible joy to be here. Uh, special blessing to follow my dear friend, uh, Dr. Dr. Steve Lawson, and to talk about the greatest person in the universe, the greatest subject of all subjects, our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how much I study about Christ or preach about Christ, He is utterly and completely inexhaustible. So much of my life has focused on the Gospels. About 25 years of my preaching out of half a century has been through the Gospels. And many, many years then going back to write commentaries on the four Gospels. And of course, everything else in the Bible points to Christ. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. The Gospel records His arrival, His life and ministry. The book of Acts, the subject is His Gospel being preached to the world. Then the epistles explain the meaning of His life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coronation. The book of Revelation looks forward to His second coming. So this is the book about the glorious Son of God. No matter what we say, we can barely touch the hem of the garment of the glorious incarnate One. But for us on this occasion tonight, I want to go to the first gospel, and it's not Matthew. It's Isaiah 53, so I want you to take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 53. It has been called the first gospel because it is the full account of the life of the servant of Jehovah, the slave of Jehovah, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In my mind, Isaiah 53 not only gives us the biography of Christ, but it is the single greatest text to verify and validate the divine inspiration of the Bible. Isaiah 53 is the most comprehensive, the most profound revelation of the significance of salvation through the death of Christ anywhere in Holy Scripture. It has no New Testament parallel. It is the greatest, most thorough explanation of the, the of the theology of the atonement, substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement, sacrificial atonement. It explains more concisely and thoroughly the meaning of the death of the Messiah, the servant, the Son of God, has no other parallel in Scripture. It really is where we are first introduced to gospel language. In fact, the gospel language of Isaiah 53 more precisely and briefly explains the meaning of the gospel than any particular passage in the New Testament. We wouldn't have the full understanding that we do of the meaning of the death of Christ if we didn't know what was said about His death 700 centuries before He arrived. 
53rd chapter of Isaiah is the source of many hymns that we sing, like, O sacred head now wounded, like man of sorrows, alas, and did my Savior bleed, I lay my sins on Jesus, hail thou once despised Jesus, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, what a friend we have in Jesus, I was a wandering sheep, Christ triumphant, ever reigning, to the spiritual he never said a mumbling word, a song of love unknown, when I survey the wondrous cross, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, crown him with many crowns, what wondrous love of, is this? All of that comes out of Isaiah 53, refers back to it. Isaiah 53 has stunning predictions, so special, so complex, that only God could have authored this seven centuries before it happened. The German commentator in 1866 said this, Isaiah 53 is the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest text that prophecy has ever achieved. Luther said this text is so important, every Christian should memorize it, and I would commend that to you. The New Testament writers refer to almost every line in Isaiah 53. The scope of this chapter is staggering. It sweeps from eternity past to eternity future. It goes from the eternal trinity down to the Son's incarnation, the Son's humiliation, the Son's rejection, injustice, conviction, sentence, execution, resurrection, ascension, intercession, exaltation, and coronation. It's all here. It goes from before creation to the new creation in the eternal kingdom. In fact, if all the New Testament epistles were lost, there is sufficient revelation of the gospel here to save sinners. It was Isaiah 53 that the eunuch was reading when he ran into Philip in Acts 8. From that, Philip preached Jesus. This chapter is so clearly presenting our Lord Jesus Christ that the Jews refused to read it in their regular synagogue readings. They skip over it. Isaiah 53 has been called the torture chamber of rabbis. Isaiah 53 has been called the guilty conscience of the Jews. There is a riddle in the Old Testament. It is the religious riddle of all riddles, really. We can find it expressed in Exodus chapter 34. And I pose it to you as the question that true religion must answer. Here it is. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by in front of him, in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Therein lies the ultimate question of salvation. How can God be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, loving kindness, and truth, and forgive sins, transgressions, and iniquity, and still not leave the guilty unpunished? How can God be, in the language of Paul, just and the justifier of sinners? There is the greatest question that can ever be asked and answered. How can a sinner be right with a holy God? This revelation from God answers that most critical of all questions raised there in Exodus 34. Isaiah 53 is the answer to that. Now, all religion purports to answer the question, how can those who offend God be made right with God? That is why religion exists. It it doesn't exist for its moral values. It exists always to bridge the gap between those who offend a deity and that deity so that the offenders can somehow mitigate the hostility and the anger of the deity. All religion purports to answer the question, how can a sinner be made right with God? If religion answers that question wrongly, it is demonic. It is hellish. All answers, but this answer, as recorded in Isaiah 53 and the rest of Scripture, are doctrines of demons. This is the question that religion must answer. How can sinners be made right with God? A couple of more notes about this chapter. It is enigmatic. We're actually going to start in 52, verse 13. The chapter is enigmatic. It is, first of all, horrifically sad. It is a a chapter of crushing sorrow. It is a chapter that produces immense grief, overwhelming grief, profound grief without historical parallel. The grief that is being expressed in this chapter is the greatest expression of grief in all of redemptive history. It exceeds any other scene in the Old Testament or the New Testament for its sorrow. It is heartbreaking. But secondly, This chapter is gloriously joyous, and therein lies its enigmatic character. 
It is a revelation of incomparable joy and unparalleled blessing. In the wonderful design of God, He gave this revelation to Isaiah. And in a, a special providence in the organization of the book of Isaiah, He put it in the very heart of this book. There are five chapters, 49, 50, 52, or 49, 50, actually you can go back to 42, 42, 49, 50, 52, 53, that all introduce the slave of Jehovah, the servant of Jehovah, the Messiah. This chapter is the most detailed revelation of the servant of God or the slave of Jehovah. Now in Isaiah, like the Bible, there is a division. There are 39 chapters of judgment and 27 chapters of salvation. So it's broken down in that sense like the Old Testament and the New Testament, 39 and 27. In the 27 chapters that look at salvation, there are three sections of nine, 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 and nine. There is the, the first of the nine chapters in the second section deals with the salvation of Israel in the world, Israel's deliverance, Israel's preservation. The last nine chapters deal with the creation of salvation in its fullest and final sense, ending up in the new heaven and the new earth. So you have the salvation of Israel, the salvation of the world, and the middle nine chapters you have personal salvation, the salvation that Messiah brings to the human heart. In the middle of that last section is chapter 53, and in the middle of chapter 53, the very center of 53, are verses 4 through 6, which define the substitutionary vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. It's as if the Holy Spirit providentially took the book of Isaiah and just funneled it down to the most salient verses related to the gospel. It is a masterpiece of divine inspiration and revelation, and it is a wonder of providence as well. Now, clearly, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is not a prediction of His coming. That may surprise you, but I'll show you why we know that. It is not a prediction of His coming, and you'll see that. So let's begin with those thoughts in mind back in chapter 52, verse 13, with the startling slave of Jehovah. And here we begin to see the enigma in this person. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will startle, better translation, many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Now here you have, before you get to chapter 53, a divine introduction. This is the first person, and this is God speaking. Behold, my servant, the Messiah. This is God. 
God is introducing this prophecy and telling us it is about the servant of Jehovah. And he describes, first of all, the astonishing revelation of the servant of Jehovah. Here's the first thing we learn. He will prosper. He will succeed. He will accomplish God's purpose. We see also in verse 13 that he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That language is very specific. That is the same exact language as Isaiah 6, and the same three Hebrew words in Isaiah 6 refer to God, high and lifted up on his throne. The exact same language describing God in Isaiah 6 here is used to describe the servant of Jehovah, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the New Testament writers tell us that even in Isaiah 6, the vision of God was a vision of the Son as well. So we learn that the servant of the Lord will succeed, and the servant of the Lord will be God. We quickly learn also not only about an astonishing revelation, but an astonishing humiliation. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, following the story of Israel was a pretty astonishing thing in itself. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Now we know that he is not only God, as clearly laid out by the language of verse 13, but he is a man, and he is a man who is humiliated down to the level where he is marred more than any man. How is it that Jesus is marred more than any man, scarred, wounded, degraded, and his form more than the sons of men? No one has ever sunk as low as he has. That is a startling and enigmatic way to compare that with the previous verse. He will be disfigured, he will be distorted, he will be repulsive, he will be at the level of no other human being in terms of his debasement. Then in verse 15, the enigma continues. He is exalted. He will startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. He will silence the monarchs of the world. For what, he, they had, what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. Comes as God, comes as man. He is lowered to the lowest and most debased level more than any other human being who ever lived. And yet... He takes over the entire world and astonishes the kings of the world. Read Psalm 2. This is an astonishing prophecy of the glory of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and the glorification of Christ. As God, He becomes man, is humiliated, and then reigns over the entire creation. Equal to God, yet humbled like no one else, and yet exalted over all. This is God's personal introduction to the servant 
the Messiah. Who is he? Well, now we come to chapter 53. Just listen to this language. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. I'm going to stop there. This is the most comprehensive revelation of the Messiah on the pages of the Old Testament. It's literally overwhelming. But it's not a prophecy of his life and death though they are features in this revelation. Why do I say that? Please notice, we went from God speaking in verses 13 to 15 to another speaker starting in verse 1, and it's plural. So we have a group speaking who has believed our messages, we, our, us, the pronouns all of a sudden become plural. There's another startling reality here, and that is that the verbs are not in the future tense. It doesn't say, we will not believe the message He brings us. We will not acknowledge the arm of the Lord. He will grow up like a tender shoot. No, no future verbs are here. They're all past tense. They're all past tense. Who is speaking? And why are they speaking in the past tense? The answer is this. Israel is speaking. Not the Israel of old and not the present Israel, but a future Israel. What is that to say? Listen to 
the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 12, and verse 10 and following. Here is the prophecy of the future salvation of Israel. We should be familiar with it. If I can find the page here. Chapter 12 and verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David in the future and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And then this, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. Future prediction of Israel's salvation. The house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Draman on the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In that day, chapter 13, verse 1, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. That's a prophecy of the salvation of Israel. That's a prophecy of the future salvation of Israel. The time is going to come in the future when they look on the one they pierced and mourn for him as an only son. This prophecy, back to Isaiah 53, looks at that event. It looks forward to the repentance of Israel in the future, and it is Israel that looks back and says, He was pierced for our transgressions. This looks at the future salvation of Israel. That is why this is so terrifyingly, tragically sad. Because that has not happened, which means generation after generation after generation of Jews have passed into eternity in full rejection of the Messiah. The sorrow bound up in this event in the future will be the sorrow of human history, the sorrow of the ages and ages and ages and ages of Jewish rejection of God and His Messiah. The sadness of looking back at the centuries and the rejection of the blessed Messiah. In that day, the repentance, as Zechariah says, will sweep across Israel. And these will be their words. This is the salvation confession of a future generation of Jews who will be brought to salvation when God fulfills His promise to bring the new covenant of salvation as Ezekiel and Jeremiah promised to the people of Israel. This is what they will say. Let's listen to this confession. Here's what they'll say. 
verse 1. Who has believed literally the message given to us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What they're going to say to begin with is this. Who believed it? Who believed the report that came to us from the prophets all the way to John the Baptist, from the Son of God Himself, God who spoke Hebrews 1, many ways, who then spoke in His Son, but who believed it? And who saw the revelation of the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord is the strength and power of God, referred to back in chapter 52, verse 10. Jesus came not only with a revelation from God about Himself, but He came with power from God. And what they're saying is nobody believed the message. This is the beginning of their confession. We didn't believe. Our people didn't believe, and they continued in unbelief. And no matter what He did by way of miracle power, they didn't see in it the arm of the Lord. Why? Why so many centuries, millennia of rejection? Why? Well, first of all, because of his contemptuous origin. Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Tender shoot is a sucker branch. He was like a sucker branch. He was a nothing. He was like that sucker branch that a farmer whacks off the tree because all it does is suck up fruitless life. A sucker branch. He was, he was also like a dry root in the ground, a root out of parched ground that's only going to trip somebody up and cause somebody to fall and be injured. With no stately birth, with no social status. He was an absolute, utter nobody from Nazareth. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Joseph and Mary? This is a sucker branch. This is a, a dry root. He had contemptible origins, nothing noble about his origin. He had a contemptible appearance. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. He certainly didn't have a medieval halo over his head. There was nothing about his appearance that we would be attracted to him. No royal birth, no royal bearing, no majesty, common, lowly. He was nothing. He was nobody. That is not what they thought the Messiah would be when he came. He had a contemptible origin. He had a contemptible appearance. And he actually had a contemptible life. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was irrelevant. He was more than that. He was repulsive. It says twice that he was despised. Treated with hatred. That hatred has continued through Jewish history. You go a little further into the writings of the Jews, and you read that the name Yeshua, Jesus, 
was changed in Jewish literature to Yeshu. That's an acrostic meaning, let his name be blotted out. He is called in Jewish literature the transgressor. He is called Tului, the hanged one. He is called Yeshua ben Panera, the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier who got a Jewish girl pregnant. He was despised and forsaken of men. Ben Ish, men of nobility, men of renown, men of power, men of rank, the leaders of Israel. None of the power elite. In fact, the power elite said he did what he did by the power of Beelzebub. They killed him. They killed his followers. It is ludicrous to assume that this was, in fact, the Messiah. And by the way, they didn't need a suffering Messiah. They were righteous in their own works. So the sum of it is, at the end of verse 3, we didn't esteem him. He didn't exist. He had no place in our world. In the future, Israel will look back and they will confess their utter rejection of Christ. He didn't fit their messianic view. He didn't fit it. Still the way it is. I had an interview on a number of years ago now. can't think of just exactly how many years with Ben Shapiro. And uh, he had the same idea. It's unacceptable that Jesus could possibly be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. That's where their confession begins. He didn't fit our messianic theology. We weren't looking for a Savior. We didn't need a Savior. But in the future, their eyes will be opened, and they will look back on the one who came to be that Savior. After that deep and crushing omission, uh, admission, after that repentance comes faith in verses 4 to 6. Now we see it. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs, referring to outward calamities, he bore. Our sorrows, referring to inward pain, he carried. He was carrying our griefs. He was carrying our sorrows. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought God was punishing him for being a blasphemer. Stricken means to hit violently, smitten, to beat even to death, afflicted, debased, and degraded. And we thought we were doing God's work. We thought we were the instruments of God to strike Him, smite Him, and afflict Him. 
but it's a very important transition in verse 5. Now we see he, he wasn't put to death because he was a blasphemer. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This is the confession, pierced, as specifically it says the Messiah would be in Psalm 22. Crushed, which means trampled. Chastened, which is the only Hebrew word for punished. He was pierced and crushed and punished for our transgressions, for our iniquities. This is the great confession that Israel will one day make. It all happened as chastening for our well-being, not His, as scourging for our healing. This is the revelation that will come to Israel and is the saving revelation that comes to every sinner when they are converted. And it is this, that Jesus died in our place. Every sinner has to see that to be saved. Every sinner has to recognize that my griefs and my sorrows are the result of my transgressions and my iniquities, my violations, that's the word transgression, my iniquities, my perversions, and recognize that for those, Christ was stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, and punished. There is no no more complete description of substitutionary vicarious atonement anywhere on the pages of Scripture. That was all for our sinful deeds. But look, there's more in verse 6. We have a problem underlying our sinful deeds. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Here He's not talking about our deeds, He's talking about our nature. And He moves to this issue of nature by using sheep as an illustration. Sheep go astray. That's their nature. Not only do we have behavior problems, we have nature problems. We have nature problems. Psalm 51, I was basically conceived and born in iniquity, placed on Jesus in His death were not only my transgressions and my perversions and my sins, but my sin nature, which essentially means that from the time I'm born until I die, sin will be a reality in my life to some degree. All of that all that my nature is in its fallenness, all the behaviors of my life. God caused to fall on Him. This is how you have to understand the cross. 
When Israel repents in the future and when they look on the one whom they've pierced and they start to mourn, and out of their mourning comes the truths of Isaiah 53, they will be accurate in their soteriology. They will understand that the death of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary, vicarious death. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. This is a startling servant, a scorned servant, and the substitute. There's more. Verse 7, a submissive servant. He was oppressed, which speaks of his illegal trial. Literally in Hebrew, he allowed himself to be abused. He allowed himself to be abused. This is the very likely a reference to his beating with scourges. He allowed that pre-cross abuse. And through it all, he didn't open his mouth. He was silent. He didn't speak. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He did not speak. He was silent, did not open his mouth. He was led like a sheep to slaughter. Had the occasion in New Zealand to watch sheep go to slaughter silently. Christ before his accusers, silent. Innocent people always protest. He was silent. In the Talmud it says that the Jews didn't crucify Jesus for 40 days after their trial because they gave 40 days for anyone to come and speak in his defense and no one came in 40 days. That's a lie. That's a lie. He was taken away by oppression and judgment. He went immediately from oppression, an illegal trial, to judgment, a verdict, to being taken away and then being cut off. There were no 40 days. He went from arrest and sentence to execution. Why? The end of verse 8, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. You should never, ever have to be confused about the substitutionary, vicarious, atoning death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. He became sin for us who knew no sin. Verse 9 describes his burial, his grave. He went to a grave. As a criminal, he should have been thrown into Gehenna and just burned with the trash. But his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's where it should have been. What that means is he was assigned to go where the criminals go, take him down off the cross and throw him in the burning fires of Gehenna. Where criminals and dead animals go. 
But Psalm 16, it also said about him that his flesh would never see corruption. And so in the purposes of God, he was assigned to die in the trash heap. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Who's that? Matthew 27, Joseph of Arimathea came and claimed his body. Luke 23. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That's the first positive word in this chapter. This is the first time start, things start going in the direction that we think they should. This is the first time there's any relief from the horrible, unbelievable, incomprehensible, unparalleled sadness because he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was perfectly sinless, and this is the first step upward. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased, not pleased with the agony, not pleased with the suffering, but pleased with the atonement. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The devil didn't kill Jesus. Jews didn't kill Jesus. Romans didn't kill Jesus. God killed him. God killed him by loading him up with all the sins of all the people through all of human history who would ever be redeemed. And he paid the penalty in full for all those sins. He took the full wrath of God for all the sins of all who would ever believe, and he did it in a period of darkness of about three hours. And you ask, how could he absorb eternal punishment for all the people who have ever believed through all of human history and do it in three hours? And the answer is because he's an infinite person. But when it was over, it was over. And he was not going to wind up on the dump. Because he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. He didn't become a sinner as some of the charismatic preachers have said through the years. He didn't become a sinner. He was as pure, sinless, holy, harmless, and undefiled on the cross as he was before and after. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And I love this. Because he would render himself as a guilt offering, a satisfaction, a propitiation. He rendered himself as a guilt offering. In other words, God was propitiated. God was satisfied. God was satisfied. He did not die a martyr's death under grace. He died a sinner's death under law. In order that he might pay in full the penalty for our sins, he was a guilt offering, and that guilt offering satisfied God. And then in the middle of verse 10, there is a shocking statement. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
You have him dead, crushed as a guilt offering. What do you mean he will see his offspring? Quite a statement. Think about that now that I'm at the age I'm at. And the Lord is giving us another generation of um, precious little children. I have three little great grandsons from a couple of months to almost two. I look into their little faces and I hold them in my arms and I wonder what their life will become. I'll never see the fulfillment of their life. People often say to me, this is, a, this is really a sad time for them to be born, and my response is, no, it's not. It's God's time for them to be born. He has a purpose for them. I will only see my offspring if they come to heaven. So far, the Lord has been very gracious with our family. But I don't have any guarantee that I'm going to see my offspring. The only way Jesus could see his offspring would be a resurrection, right? A resurrection. He will be raised. That's the implication. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Therein is the resurrection. He will see every successive generation of His beloved, redeemed children. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. That is the affirmation of the resurrection. So we have gone from seeing the Son of God high and lifted up in chapter 52, verse 13 as he was on the throne of Isaiah 6. We've come down to his incarnation. We've seen his life and his rejection. We've seen his trial. We've seen his sentence. We've seen his death. We've seen his resurrection. And now we hear that God is pleased and by God's good pleasure Christ will prosper. But there's more. Not only is God satisfied, look at verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. The writer of Hebrews says, he went to the cross, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What is the joy that was set before him? His offspring. His soul is satisfied eternally. He will be surrounded by those he purchased in his death. Full satisfaction, which is to say that Christ will spend eternity with all whom he has redeemed. No one will fall through the cracks. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will lose none, but raise them all in the last day. And then this marvelous confession ends. Halfway through verse 11. And God speaks. By his knowledge, 
the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. God affirms substitutionary vicarious atonement. This is now God speaking again, as he did at the start, identifying the righteous one, my servant, my slave, the Messiah. God is satisfied. Christ is satisfied. And many will be justified by the knowledge of the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no salvation in any other name. And God sovereignly rewards him. Verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. In other words, I will lavish on him all the fullness of my inheritance, and along with him all those who belong to him, all the joint heirs, because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. That doesn't mean he was crucified in the middle of two thieves. That means he was counted with the transgressors by bearing the sins of all whose sins were placed on him and whose punishment he endured. That's what comes next. What does it mean he was numbered with the transgressors? It means he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. There you have the ascension of Christ. He receives a portion with the great. He is exalted. You have the coronation of Christ, which was alluded to back in verse 15, where he will come to startle many, and he will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. This is God's divine affirmation of the salvation confession from verse 1 to the middle of verse 11. So here, as I said at the very beginning, you have the first gospel. And by the way, in chapter 12, or in verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great, literally the many, the many, those who have been redeemed, He will divide the booty with the strong, or he will divide his portion with the redeemed. So the section of Scripture we've looked at goes from heaven to earth to heaven, from glory to shame to glory, from life to death to life. For us, And one day, one day, for the nation Israel, and God will keep that promise. And I say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that this is overwhelming to us the veracity of Scripture, laying out the details of the life of Christ seven centuries before He was ever born, that describes the meaning of His death and resurrection, 
that describes the necessary confession the sinner must make and the affirmation of the way of salvation through the substitutionary atonement of the blessed servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the glory of your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that uh, perhaps more than in the past, this chapter is circulating among Jewish people in Israel. Thank you, Lord, for giving them the gift of this chapter in this generation. We would pray for the salvation of Israel. But until that day in your plan, we pray that this same confession will be made by sinners worldwide, that you will use us to proclaim it that they will come to the one whom they rejected, confess their rejection, and embrace him as the one who died in their place and rose for their eternal life. Thank you for the glory of your word, which literally overwhelms us with its supernatural character. May we love the truth written and the truth incarnate and proclaim both for your glory. Amen.